Let's open our Bibles together to Book of Acts, chapter 19, and verse 23. Acts 19.23 for our message from the Word of God this morning. Acts 19.23 is on page 1176 if you're using the church Bible this morning. This morning being March 12th, 2023. Our text will begin in Acts 19.23 and go on down right through verse 34. And the title of this morning's message is The Riot in Ephesus. The Riot in the City of Ephesus. And we begin with the story of a police chief who asked one of his officers, Do you have any suspects as to who might have started the riot in the city last night? And the officer said, No, but I'd like to question the lady wearing high heels and a, and a pink dress. And the chief said, Okay, but I think you should question her wearing your uniform instead. <laughs> instead of Wow, speaking of city riots, here in Acts 19, we're about to read about a riot that broke out in the city of Ephesus over something that the Apostle Paul had been preaching. The story begins in Acts 19 and verse 23, where we read these words. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way. Now to begin with, when Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, when he says there was no small stir about that way, that was his way of saying there was a great big stir about that way. And as we saw last Sunday, that way was what the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ were called ever since he said what he said in John 14.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. The world around you wants you to think it doesn't matter what you believe because all religions lead to heaven. <laughs> Don't you believe that? The Lord did not say he was one of the ways to the Father. He said he was the way to the Father. And then he added that nobody gets to the Father but by him. But that is not what the guy in the next verse in our text believed in verse 24, where it says there was 
No small stir about that way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain to the craftsmen. Well, obviously, that guy believed in a false goddess named Diana. And Diana was one of the, the Greek gods that you learned about in school a long time ago. One of the Greek gods in Greek mythology. And Diana was so popular in Ephesus that they built her a temple that was so utterly magnificent, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That means it ranked right up there with the Great Pyramid of Giza, which was the tallest man-made structure on earth for 4,000 years. Diana's temple was three stories high, bigger than a football field, and get this, made entirely of marble. Folks, there was nothing like it in the world at that time. And when verse 24 says that Demetrius and the craftsmen in Ephesus made silver shrines for Diana, a shrine is a building in which you put something that you worship or you revere. You football fans know that every year in Canton, Ohio, the National Football League has what they call Enshrinement Week. Ever heard of that? It's a week in which they enshrine the statues of their most revered players into a building called the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You can see that building from the highway. I've never been to the Football Hall of Fame, but I've driven past it. And the time I drove past it, they had a banner hanging on the outside of the building that looked to be about three stories tall, and it featured the greatest running back of all time. And Chicagoans know who that was? Walter Payton. Walter Payton, yeah. If Walter would have had a better offensive line, he would have set records that no running back would have ever broken. But the Greeks reverenced and worshipped the false goddess Diana. So her temple was a building that had a statue of Diana enshrined in it. And when verse 24 says that Demetrius made silver shrines for Diana, that means he made little silver replicas of her temple to sell to people who worshipped Diana. People who then 
took those little silver replicas home and worshipped the replicas as idols. And as you can see there, Demetrius wasn't the only silversmith in town who made them because verse 24 says those shrines brought no small gain to the other craftsmen in town too. But Demetrius must have been what we call the the front man of the craftsmen because verse 24 says that he was the one who brought no small gain to them. Now, that means he must have been the silversmith who who promoted their shrines and made them popular throughout the rest of the world. So, it's not surprising that as their leader, he's the one who called the silversmiths together for a union meeting (laughs) in the next verse, in verse 25, where it says of those craftsmen... (laughs) whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Those silversmiths had gotten filthy rich by making those shrines. And when it says Demetrius called together the workmen of like occupation, that means that silversmiths like Demetrius, they weren't the only ones getting wealthy off of Diana. We read about another kind of smith in 2 Timothy 4.14, your next cross-reference there, where Paul wrote to Timothy saying, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. And we know that Alexander lived in Ephesus because that's where Paul left Timothy. And you know that because later on in your next reference, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3, I, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. And if Paul's telling Timothy about Alexander, that means he was probably one of the ones of like who were attending this union. We know that silversmithing and coppersmithing were similar crafts because, I don't know if you know this or not, but Paul Revere was a silversmith, but later on in his life, he got into coppersmithing as well. And I don't mean the Paul Revere, the head of the rock band called Paul Revere and um, the... You know, those guys thought they were America's answer to the British invasion. Like, you know, the stones in the middle. I mean, if the British were coming, Paul Revere was going to be there to warn That was his shtick. But this means if a visitor in Ephesus couldn't afford a silver replica of Diana's temple, 
pick it up for a copper shrine. But all of that profit was about to go out the window if they didn't do something about this Paul character here. And folks, this was a turning point in the book of Acts. Because up until this time, it's always been unsaved Jews who oppose Paul's ministry for, for threatening their religion. Now, Gentiles are joining the Jews for threatening their money. And that, from this point on, the whole world was united against God's Apostle Paul and the message of grace that he was preaching. Well, Demetrius went on to tell those smiths in the next two verses in your text, in verses 26 and 27. Moreover, ye see and hear that who owned Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia. This Paul, <laughs> you can almost hear the, the contempt in their voice. This Paul guy has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands, like our statue of Diana. So that not only this, our craft, is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple itself, the temple of the great goddess Diana, should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, what he's talking about here is another Ephesian industry that was going to suffer if Paul wasn't silenced. Demetrius was worried that Paul's ministry would cause Diana's temple to be despised. And if that happened, it would have a really serious effect on tourism. You know, in our day, millions of people make religious pilgrimages every year to places like Israel, the Vatican, or Mecca. I read that five million people a year visit the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City. And, and those pilgrimages generate a whole lot of money in tourism. And a lot of those tourism dollars in Ephesus went to buying those little shrines for Diana. All those tourism dollars would dry up if her temple continued to be despised and her magnificence was, was uh, destroyed, as, as Paul put it. But now here I think Demetrius realizes he's been sounding way too mercenary or money grubbing. <laughs> I mean, so far all he's been saying is how Paul was hurting their income, right? So here, in verse 27, he adds, and, and oh yeah, he's getting people to despise our God. Now that shows you 
what his priorities were, right? After he said that, he probably thought, I probably should have said that first. <laughs> I probably should have lived with that. And whenever I read this passage, it always makes me think of a line from the book, Gone with the Wind. I don't know if it was in the movie, you know, you can't fit everything in a thousand book even into a horror movie, or our movie, but do you remember when Rhett Butler asked Scarlett O'Hare to be his mistress? And without thinking, she replied, what would I get out of that except a parcel of brats? Bunch of illegitimate kids. And as soon as she said it in the book, they're telling you her thoughts, she realized that she should have said, how dare you say that to a lady like me? Instead, she showed she was more worried about having to raise illegitimate kids than she was about her honor as a southern lady. And Demetrius showed he was more worried about his wallet than he was worried about the honor of his God. Well, Demetrius here, he hadn't said very much yet, has he? But he said enough to get the riot started, as you see in the next two verses of your text, verses 28 and 29. And when they heard... These things, these sayings that Demetrius said, they were full of wrath. And they cried out, Say, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. The whole city heard those craftsmen shout that shout. So there was a whole lot of craftsmen shouting that shout. So the whole city knew something was up. Didn't know what. But once they showed up and the Smiths couldn't find Paul, <laughs> They grabbed two of his known associates and rushed into the theater. And as you can see by the picture of that theater that I put in your bulletin there, it's still standing. And as soon as I thought, saw it, I saw, that is really an impressive theater. Like most outdoor theaters even today, it was, it was carved into the hillside in order to, to make use of, of the grade of the slope's hill there. But, unlike any other outdoor theater on the planet, this theater has a seating capacity of 25,000. Now, you compare that to the largest active outdoor theater in the world today, the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles. It seats 17,000. Recently I was watching the Beverly Hillbillies, and 
some swindler was trying to sell the Hollywood Bowl to Uncle Jed. So when I picture the uh, theater, uh, the Hollywood Bowl anyway, I, I picture Jed and Granny sitting on the stage, you know, listening to this guy. But with a capacity of 25,000, that theater was a massive structure. And you wouldn't think 25,000 people could do what it says in that verse there and rush into the theater. But look at that picture again. Do you see that really wide road in the picture that, that leads to the theater? That's called the harbor road because it used to actually reach the harbor before the waters receded and uh, the water level went way down we do the global cooling uh, but don't worry I hear the waters are coming back but anyway they say that road is 36 feet across which would make it the width of a three lane superhighway to me it looks like it's wider than that in the picture but to get to the point if music fans can get in and out of the Hollywood Bowl for a concert in one evening using modern roads, I'm thinking 25,000 people had no problem rushing into this theater. And Paul must have followed his co-workers into the theater because in verse 30, the next verse in our text, we find Paul waiting in the wings, I guess you'd say. Verse 30 says, And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. The apostle Paul knew that that crowd was out for blood, folks. And he wanted to make sure that it was his blood that got shed and not the blood of his friends. But, as you see there, his other co-workers talked him out of it. And that reminds me of your next reference where King David wanted to put his life in danger. And it says in 2 Samuel 18.3, The people answered, They will not care for us. Neither if half of us die will they care for us. But now thou art worth 10,000 of us, David. Therefore now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. And then in your next reference, a while later, David's men told him, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. And listen, the Apostle Paul was certainly the spiritual light that God did not want to be quenched here in Acts 19, right? And Paul's disciples, they weren't the only ones who were trying to keep him from entering the, the arena that day. As we read on in your text in verse 31, it says that Certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto Paul 
desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater, into the midst of that murderous crowd. Now here we see Paul have what we would call friends in high places, right? That word certain of the chief of Asia there, that, that refers to prominent people who we would call the, the movers and shakers in society. Now you'll notice it doesn't say they were disciples. So we kind of have to assume they weren't believers. But that begs the question of then, well, how did they get to be his friends? And I'm sure part of the answer is that Paul was probably as lovable as your pastor. But I think there might have been some more to it. You see, back in the days when Billy Sunday Crusades were as famous as Billy Graham Crusades were later, the the bosses of, of big companies, the chief operating officers of big companies, they would contact the CEOs of their plants in other cities and say, When Billy Sunday gets to town, you get behind him and finance him and help him with his expenses, whatever that guy needs. Make sure he has it because when he was here in our town, our employees stopped showing up for work drunk or hungover, and they stopped stealing stuff from the plant because they got religion. (laughs) Well, we know they got saved. But I think that that's how these chief men of Asia got to be Paul's friends, folks. They may not have believed what he was preaching, but they knew he was good for business. Just a theory. But once again, if you look at that, you see that if you want to make the world a better place, don't go into politics. Go into the ministry. Do what Paul did. Do what Billy Sunday did. Preach the gospel. That's the only hope of making the world a better place. And you don't have to be a pastor to preach the gospel. Well, after the whole city rushed into the theater, verse 32 of our text says, Some therefore cried one thing, and some another. For the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Sounds like a lot of church meetings, doesn't it? They're all confused, and most of them don't know why they're there. (laughs) But here we have to ask, If most of them didn't know why they were there, then why'd they bother to come? (laughs) Well, if I had to guess, I would say it's because those angry voices of all those craftsmen told them somebody was about to get fed by the lions or killed in some other way, and they didn't want to miss the show. I was looking it up, and from archaeology, they can tell that gladiators fought in Ephesus. 
So maybe here they thought it was it was time for another bloody show that would feature man's inhumanity to man, as we say. But then something kind of odd happened in verse 33, your next verse of our text, where it says, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people. Now, who's this Alexander guy? And why are the Jews shoving him into the arena where it's looking like Gaius and Aristarchus are about to be slaughtered? Well, we can't be sure because... Alexander was a pretty popular name in the centuries after Alexander the Great conquered the world. So we don't know if this is the same Alexander the coppersmith that we read about earlier. But I think it is. And I think he was a Jew. Because the the Jews put him forward, right? But also because it says he he beckoned with the hand. That was the Jewish way of getting people's attention when you wanted to give a speech. Before the days of PA system, nowadays you just tap on the microphone, right? But look what Paul did in Acts 13 and verse 16. Paul stood up and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them, went ahead for, with his speech. And then, in the very next reference, in Acts 21.40, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, then he spake unto them. So I think Alexander here is, is a Jew. So now the question is, why would the Jews thrust one of their own into a dangerous situation? And I think the reason is, when the crowd wanted to kill Paul for saying they be no such things as gods made with hands, and then when they couldn't find Paul and grabbed a couple of other guys who said there's no such thing as gods made with hands, it wasn't going to take that unruly mob long to remember that Jews don't believe in gods made with hands and take them and start throwing them into the arena to be killed. So they decided to appoint a a representative to go out and explain to that bloodthirsty mob that Ephesian Jews didn't mind idolatry. So they said, whoever wants to go out there, take one step forward. And they all took one step backward, and there was poor Alexander staring there. That's, at least that's how I picture it went down. Now maybe you're thinking, well, but how would he be able to prove that the Jews in Ephesus didn't believe in idolatry? And the only way I can think of is if he got up 
and informed the crowd that the Jews made idols too, that they were card-carrying members of the Silver Shrine for Diana Union, folks. Don't forget what McKenna read from Matthew 8 this morning in our scripture reading. The Lord ran into some Jews who kept swine. And just like the law of Moses says, thou shalt not make any graven image, it says don't touch any swine. So, they were guilty of one. There were probably some guilty of the other as well. Stop and think it through a minute. If this Jew was named after a famous Gentile conqueror like Alexander, well, that tells you that his parents and the rest of the Jews in Ephesus probably weren't the most spiritually minded uh, Jews because spiritually minded Jews didn't name their kids after pagan conquering generals. And if I'm right, that just means that there were Jews in those days just like some Christians today who weren't above doing something they knew would displease God if there was money in it. Jews and Gentiles throughout history have been guilty of that, so don't be poo-pooing on the Jews just because they're the ones doing it here. And if this Alexander was Alexander the coppersmith, well, that would explain why our earlier reference there said he did Paul much evil. I mean, Paul nearly got him killed here. As we read on, we're going to see the mob didn't even let him give his defense. Look at verse 34. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now I want you to think about that because have you ever been watching the news and they show news coverage of a picket line or a protest march where the protesters were chanting things like, What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. And they just keep repeating that. What do we want? Time travel. When do we want it? Doesn't matter. Time travel. What do we want? Our morning constitutions. When do we want them? Regularly. That's what we want them. Think about that one. But no matter what they're protesting when you see them on the news like that, you look at that and you think... Yeah, they just do that all day long. Chant that thing all the live long day. What do we want? You know? But the truth is, <laughs> they often stop. Especially when the cameras stop rolling and the camera crews leave. They don't do that all Nobody can sustain a cry like that for two straight hours, let alone all the live long day. So how did these bozos pull it off? <laughs> Well, look what Paul said about this experience in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, 32, 32. After the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. Now, 
Paul didn't really fight with actual beasts at Ephesus. At least we have no record in the scriptures of him being thrown to the lions like Daniel was and being and surviving and being able to write about it later. But look again at 1 Corinthians 15.32 when it says, After the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. That, that phrase means that Paul's using a figure of speech like he does in your last reference. Galatians 3.15 Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. When we studied that passage not long ago, we saw that when he says he's speaking after the manner of men, what he meant was he was comparing Abraham's covenant with God to the covenant that men make with each other. He's using a figure of speech. So, what did Paul mean when he said he he fought with beasts at Ephesus? Well, what's another name for the Antichrist? The beast. Now, to be clear, Paul did not... He didn't fight with the Antichrist either. But if you take, take your concordance, your Bible program, whatever you want to use... And run the references on that word beast. And you'll see it is associated with fallen demonic spirits like the beast, like the Antichrist. So these guys here, maybe they were able to chant for two straight hours because they were possessed by evil spirits or at least influenced by demonic spirits in some way that would explain being able to chant for two hours either way it was certainly a a fearsome experience for Paul to go through right and his co-workers next week we're going to see how God saved Paul and his co-workers but in closing I want to remind you that one lie told over and over again does not make that lie the truth, does it? Even if it's told over and over again by 25,000 people, they could have screamed, Great is Diana of the Ephesians for two years and wouldn't have made it true. I mean, how great is Diana today? But if you tell a lie often enough, people start to believe that it's the truth, right? And no amount of shouting them down is going to be able to make them think otherwise. The only solution, folks, is to shout, Great is the Lord Jesus Christ! Over and over in your life in every way that you can think to do it. By being a good citizen and a good craftsman at work and being the absolute, flat-out, best Christian you could be. Because you know what that does? That shows people the Lord is great because He's done great things in you. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we're...
once again impressed by the courage of not just Paul, but the people who stood with him. Father, we claim to stand with Paul today. And so we pray that we might have a little bit of that courage. Very few of us are ever going to be called on to lay down our lives for Thee. And so may that give us the boldness that Paul himself prayed for to champion the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen.